Welcome to the Raging Rhino Podcast. This is podcast number 153. My name is John. Before I begin, I need to take a moment to remember Kevin Conroy, who passed away November 10th at the age of 66. Conroy is best known for voicing Batman, first in Batman the Animated Series and then in several other DC series and films. Somewhat appropriately, the last time he portrayed Bruce Wayne was in live action during the Crisis on Infinite Earths crossover. West, Keaton, Bale, Affleck all have their fans. But to many children of the 90s, Conroy will always be their Batman. As far as I'm concerned, there's all kinds of iconic Batman images. From his first appearance on the cover of Detective Comics 27, to his leaping silhouette as lightning strikes from The Dark Knight Returns number 1, and many more. But there's only one iconic voice. Rest in peace, Kevin Conroy. You will be missed. And now, on to this month's podcast. It's not easy facing up when your whole world is black. If you were to ask me what characters would make for great leads in a DC comic movie, I could probably rattle off a couple of dozen characters that I think have a good enough story to translate to the big screen. If you were to then ask me to narrow that list down to characters who are traditionally villains or anti-heroes, the list gets considerably shorter. We've seen how good such a movie can be with Joaquin Phoenix's Joker, and we've seen how awful such a movie can be with Halle Berry's Catwoman. You have to have a character you can ideally relate to, if not root for. Even more so if they lean toward that anti-hero trope that has become so common in recent decades in the comics. But if nothing else, you need one who has a story interesting enough to hold your attention for two to two and a half hours. What DC villains or anti-heroes could pull off a solo movie? Well, I think a Catwoman movie done right would certainly work. Penguin could work using a mobster rising through the ranks story. Lex Luthor? No, I don't think he could pull off his own movie. Sinestro would be interesting, seeing a character turn from hero to villain, maybe even spinning it to make Hal Jordan look like the antagonist. Lobo would be a great character to see in a solo movie, but only if it's rated R. The Flash's rogues would be good, but only in a group. I don't think any of them could pull off a solo outing. Then there's the topic of this month's podcast, with his solo movie just released, Black Adam. 
I mentioned in passing last podcast that this was certainly not a character I think of when it comes to a major theatrical release. I'm fairly familiar with the character from the comics, and he is occasionally interesting. His story is strong enough to carry a solo film, maybe a trilogy. With all that being said, he's not a character I would have chosen. However, he obviously has a pretty big name backing him up. Dwayne Johnson seems to really love the character, and seems to be invested in wanting to make a good movie. I'll talk about whether or not he succeeded. This is a spoiler-filled podcast reviewing the latest DC Comics movie, Black Adam. If you haven't seen it, and don't want to know about the various plot points, not-so-surprise cameos, and Easter eggs in the movie, then stop now and go watch the movie, because the spoilers begin right now. As always, I'm going to start with what I didn't like. The first thing is the cameo. That Henry Cavill as Superman showed up in the mid-credits scene is not a problem. Quite the opposite. I love that he was there. I want Henry Cavill as Superman. Here he is, back in the DC Universe. It's everything else with that scene I have a problem with. First off, the logical thing to do would have been Zachary Levi as Shazam show up instead of, or at least accompanying, Superman. Shazam is still a child, so it would make sense for him to want to have Superman there to take the lead. Black Adam has been referencing the Shazam name and mythology throughout the movie. Shazam should be there. Second, and I know this is petty, but it bugs the hell out of me. Enough with the fucking spit curl. Nostalgia doesn't work if you're putting out the stupidest things and pretending they're cool. You might as well have Disco Duck playing in the background. The last character to pull off a spit curl was TV's Frank from seasons 2 through 6 of Mystery Science Theater 3000, and that was nearly 30 years ago. Third, and this is where people are going to start to hate me. The theme music. Henry Cavill's Superman is not Christopher Reeve's Superman. Every time you sample John Williams' score from now on, all I'm going to think about is how it was already done in Joss Whedon's Justice League. And let's be honest, pretty much everybody's trying to forget that. Look. Williams' old score is fine. It's iconic. It's grand. You listen to it, and you picture the classic Superman with a smirk on his face, standing akimbo as the bullets bounce off his chest, and the bad guys realize they've lost. You listen to Hans Zimmer's theme, and you picture a Superman who is overcoming the impossible even when the most powerful foe has him up against the proverbial ropes, 
Superman finds the strength and the will to persevere and defeat the enemy. That is what I imagine as I hear that theme music build. Williams' score is from a franchise that peaked over 40 years ago and went downhill really fast. Enough sampling the Williams' Superman theme or even the Elfman Batman theme. Modern heroes, modern themes. I promise it's okay to do it and the characters will be better off. I don't like whatever the fuck is going on with Amanda Waller. At the end of the first season of Peacemaker, her daughter outed her and the use of Task Force X to the public. Now, it not only looks like she is still in a position of power, but she seems to have the JSA and JLA doing whatever she wants them to do. She has direct contact with the leader of the Justice Society, and he immediately assembles a team to arrest Black Adam. At the end of the movie, she warns Black Adam to stay in Kondok or get taken out. And when Black Adam calls her on her threat, suddenly Superman arrives? How is she even on speaking terms with these heroes? More on that later. And since I've started with a cameo and Amanda Waller, what the hell with the other cameo? that connects to Amanda Waller. How the fuck is Harcourt walking around the prison like it's just a routine day? She was part of the team that outed Waller and now she's just back at work like nothing happened? It's just another boring day in the prison. I think Cyclone was kind of wasted in the movie. And that's a damn shame because I really like the character and I was looking forward to her live-action debut. Most of her attacks in the movie were ineffective, and even though they touted her genius-level intellect at the beginning of the movie, it was never put to use. Of course, my biggest disappointment, and I did warn you there would be spoilers, is the death of Dr. Fate, or at least the death of Kent Nelson. I know it adds some pathos to the movie, but it's a gut punch to see the best character in the movie get killed off. And then there's Henry Winkler as the original Adam. Okay, it's not that I dislike it, but it just seemed weird to me. I guess when I think of Henry Winkler these days, I don't think of the Fonz anymore. I don't think of Fonzie. I don't think of the leather jacket and the cool guy that hits the jukebox and the music starts playing. I think of characters like Barry Zuckercorn from Arrested Development or Gene Cousineau from Barry. I struggle to think of him as a former superhero. Adam Smasher calls him Uncle Al, even though in the comics he's Adam Smasher's Godfather. I'm sure that's to streamline the story in the movies because in the comic books, 
Adam Smasher's powers do not come from his relationship to the original Adam, Al Pratt, rather from his superpowered grandfather, a villain called Cyclotron. I don't mind these kinds of changes. I understand the need to simplify the story, save the more convoluted storylines for TV. Let's get on to what I liked. I honestly don't know all that much about the main villain, Sabak, or Sabak, or whatever the hell we call him. I can't say that I even remember ever reading a comic book story with him in it. I can say that the character is visually impressive in the movie, and seems to be a good choice for a first movie bad guy. I would have liked for a little more screen time, but at least it was a far better battle than Wonder Woman versus Cheetah. Black Adam is a very difficult character to translate to live action. He is very stoic and single-minded. And that is not how you generally want your lead heroes to be. As I mentioned in the Black cast, there's a reason why Drax hasn't gotten a standalone movie. Wooden, uncompromising, and humorless is something you look for in your horror movie villain, not your star superhero. You're going to have a very rough time getting people to buy into a character like that unless you have someone with charisma. Dwayne Johnson has just enough to pull the character through the movie without grating on the audience. The brazen confidence and ironic repartee with the other characters make up for that dour stoicism. Also, I'm glad they didn't use the elf ears. For those of you unfamiliar, Black Adam in the comic books has pointed ears like an elf or Spock. I'm just guessing here, but I bet that had something to do with trying to make him look evil or sinister way back in his one and only appearance in the Golden Age. Yeah, the character was only used once and got dusted off decades later when DC acquired the rights to Shazam, then called Captain Marvel, and were attempting to bring him into their universe. What better arch-nemesis for a hero to have than an evil counterpart with the same powers, in similar fashion to Reverse Flash or Sinestro? See? All the more reason Shazam should have been there in the mid-credits scene. This is the first appearance of Black Adam in live action, unless you count his origin briefly touched upon with CGI in the Shazam movie, which I don't. My favorite part of the movie was the Justice Society. I think it was good to keep the team small, even though there's a bunch of characters they could have used. In the comic books, the JSA at times has been a team of over two dozen characters. As I mentioned earlier, Cyclone was pretty much relegated to the background. Her powers were ineffective against Black Adam, but she was helpful protecting the citizens during the final battle with Sabacc. But 
other than understanding the complexities of Hawkman's ship, there wasn't any real exploration of her intelligence that was listed at the beginning of the movie as one of her strengths. So hopefully we'll get to see more of her somewhere down the road. I would like that. Hawkman was a badass. Sure, like Black Adam, he was a little too much of a one-note alpha male team leader. But that's all he needed to be for this story. To be honest, I wouldn't mind a little more exploration of the character in the future. Hawkman is such a tough character to pin down because in the comics, he's had so many origin changes, it's almost impossible to sort it all out. And believe me, they've tried. But he turned out better here than I had hoped. I like the whole mansion thing, even if it was way too close to the X-Men. I like the fact that it was his mansion, and it makes me wonder how he got to that point. They manage to get away with the same joke after Adam Smasher makes a couple of rookie mistakes and Hawkman advises each time that they're going to have a talk. Fortunately, they didn't try to go back to it again. Aesthetically, I like that they took the traditional green out of his costume and went with the red and gold. And that funky bird mask helmet that he wears looks surprisingly good. I was impressed. This is Hawkman's first time on the big screen, but the fifth time in live action. The other four, obviously, were on television. He's briefly in Stargirl. He's been in episodes of Smallville and the various Arrowverse shows. His first live action appearance, though, was in 1979's Legends of the Superhero special, which aired on NBC. Now, 1979, I was seven years old then, and I remember watching it as a child and thinking even then that it was pretty dumb. When the DC Universe streaming service was launched, that was one of the offerings, and I decided to watch it again. I recommend that if you ever have the opportunity to watch the two episodes, that you not do it sober. It just makes it seem all that much longer. Still, though, it had a better Solomon Grundy than Gotham. Adam Smasher's frequent rookie mistakes were funny, but I wouldn't want that to continue in the next movie. Again, they pushed it to the limit and were careful not to go over the line. They captured the inexperience well, even though... In the comics, by the time he's become Atom Smasher, he's a seasoned hero. His character began in the comics as Nuclon, founding member of a new superhero team at the time, Infinity Incorporated, consisting mostly of children and relatives of members of the Justice Society of America. The team was created by Roy Thomas, Jerry Ordway, and Mike Macklin. I loved the entire run of Infinity Incorporated. I loved the second-generation heroes trying to figure out their own path. I also liked that the reason it was called Infinity Incorporated 
was because it was an actual business. They were heroes for hire. Not everyone can be a billionaire playboy in their private life. Plus, Todd McFarlane had some early work on that series. Like any comic book series, it had its ups and downs, but that original team will always be one of my favorite obscure groups. DC has yet to make an iteration even remotely good as the original. The revival a few years ago had a team being manipulated by Lex Luthor, which unfortunately is the same path they took bringing the team into the Young Justice television series. Not a fan. Nuclon would eventually briefly become a member of the Justice League, then after changing his identity to Atom Smasher, he joins the Justice Society. He eventually becomes a friend and ally of Black Adam after Atom Smasher allows a villain to die in order to save his mother's life and sees things a little more from Black Adam's point of view. I have to admit, I do like the exploration of those tough moral choices. It's one of the reasons I think Man of Steel is unfairly vilified. Adam Smasher's flirtation with Cyclone was cute. I think they hit just the right amount without going overboard. I seem to be saying that a lot about this movie. They do things that could become annoying or schlocky, but pull back from it just in time. I really hope they don't make that a habit. I don't want repetitive jokes and forced humor. I get enough of that from the MCU. This is Adam Smasher's second live-action appearance. The other was in a second-season episode of The Flash, where he was actually a villain from an alternate universe. To be honest, I remember being unimpressed with that episode, mostly because of the way they treated the character like the throwaway villain of the week. Dr. Fate was astounding, easily my favorite character in the movie. Pierce Brosnan was just awesome as Kent Nelson. I loved the veteran hero attitude of knowing when to fight and when to just sit back and watch the idiots beat up on each other until they get it out of their systems. He's a mystical badass when necessary, and really the only one who seemed to stand a remote chance of subduing Black Adam in the first place. I would love if they could find a way to have Brosnan return, and even happier if it was in a standalone movie. My pitch to DC would be to have Brosnan as Kent Nelson looking for his successor and find Khalid Nasur, the current Dr. Fate in the comics. They go on an adventure, and Khalid accepts the role, and we find out the entire thing happened as a test within the Helmet of Naboo, where Kent Nelson's spirit survives to serve as mentor. This is Dr. Fate's, I guess you could say, third appearance in live action. He was in Smallville for a couple of episodes, and his helmet appeared in the short-lived Constantine show, which means he was somewhere in the Arrowverse even before, like Hawkman, he made a brief appearance in Stargirl. I really hope this character returns to the cinematic universe. 
with mystical superhero teams like Justice League Dark, the Shadow Pact, and Demon Knights, it would be great to have a live-action exploration of that mystic corner of the DC Universe. Especially since Shazam and Black Adam both have magic-based powers. That's what I liked and did not like about the movie, but it also left me with a lot of questions. First off, my personal biggest question of the movie, who else was in that prison? As the view of the prison became wider and wider, it was apparent that Amanda Waller and whatever agency she's working for has been quite busy rounding up some powerful beings. And some of those cells seem to hold awfully big creatures. I was kind of hoping to figure out some of the prisoners by their silhouette, but it went by a little too quick for me. Maybe I'll have more luck when it drops on HBO Max in a few weeks. It would be interesting to have some hints at who was in there. I mean, if this is meant for Black Adam-level threats, or even just those who are too powerful to hold in a normal prison, there hasn't been a lot of those types of characters so far in the DCEU, and those that were didn't survive. Killer Croc and King Shark are in a normal prison, and they're pretty powerful. If Mongal from the Suicide Squad was as powerful as she is in the comics, I could see her in that prison. So I'm thinking some top-level threats like Solomon Grundy, Despero, or the Shaggy Man. And if you don't know who the Shaggy Man is, that's a pretty fun character. It goes way back into the 60s. Maybe that's where they're keeping the corpse of Doomsday or Starro. And since I just mentioned her again, who exactly is Waller working for now? Or perhaps... The question is, what agency is she the head of? How could she still be working for Argus if her actions have been outed? What if she's working for an even more clandestine agency like Checkmate? Besides all that, how the fuck is Amanda Waller still in the position of power? I mean, there is a long history in real America of using prisoners for cheap labor and guinea pigs for scientific experiments that most people would turn a blind eye to because they're criminals. And maybe that's what happened with the DCEU. But wouldn't you expect some high-ranking politician to call for hearings on the matter? Of course, the last time that happened in the DCEU, Lex Luthor set off a bomb in the meeting. So... Maybe there's some trepidation on calling out the actions of an obviously ruthless person who has superpowered criminals and weaponry at her disposal. Regardless, how the hell is she able to have Superman and the Justice Society at her beck and call? I get that you see Black Adam as a major threat, but it looks like she's the one in charge, and Superman is the errand boy. Since the world knows she's been using criminals to do her dirty work, why would the heroes be willing to work with her? I mean, Batman made it pretty clear that he knew what Waller was doing, and he told her to stop it, or he would shut her down. Of course, 
Waller also knows Batman's secret identity, so maybe there's a stalemate between the two of them. Did the hero see her worth at finding and tracking possible threats and now have her working with them so they can keep an eye on her and monitor what she's doing with the villains and the prisoners? What has happened between the season one finale of Peacemaker and Black Adam to put Waller in what seems to be an even more powerful position and have her openly working with the heroes? Inner Gang traditionally has ties to Apocalypse. Maybe I'm just trying to connect it to Zack Snyder's Justice League, but Darkseid did say he was going to use the old ways and take an armada to Earth. Perhaps until he launches his invasion, he is supplying tech and weapons to Inner Gang in an attempt to destabilize Earth and keep the heroes busy so they aren't prepared for his arrival. A guy can hope. How did Dr. Fate's helmet get damaged? That's not something you saw very often in the comics. I would certainly go for a Dr. Fate limited series on HBO Max. I know, I've already tried to go for the whole cinematic angle, but I don't think that will happen. I really do want more Dr. Fate, though, especially if Brosnan's in it, even as a supporting character. In the DCEU continuity, if Superman was the first public superhero, and Batman was an urban legend, and Wonder Woman only had brief and seemingly forgotten appearances in World War I in the mid-80s, how have all these other heroes been operating under the radar? Adam Smasher's Uncle Al, the original Adam, is an old man in this movie. He would have been a hero decades ago. Dr. Fate certainly seems like he's been around for quite a long time. Have these heroes always been in the proverbial shadows? Or are they changing the continuity to allow for legacy heroes and Golden Age characters like the original Justice Society lineup? That's enough questions. We now have an answer about who's going to run things. The big news coming out of DC recently is James Gunn and Peter Saffron, hope I'm pronouncing that correctly, will now run the newly rebranded DC Studios and overseeing films, television, and animation. I can see that after the wild and successful romps that were the Suicide Squad and the Peacemaker, that people would want a guy like Gunn developing more for DC. Peter Saffron was also in on Shazam and Aquaman, which is still the biggest grossing DC movie, believe it or not, more than The Dark Knight. So with that kind of proven track record, they seem like good choices. I'm more cautiously optimistic about it. Look, I know there are a lot of people out there who just want to go into the theater, see the colorfully clad hero beat up the villain, smile to the crowd of people he or she just saved, and fly off to heroic music as the closing credits roll. And there's certainly a lot of times I want that too. But since those kind of movies are so prevalent 
with the cookie cutter plots and similar themes even within the same cinematic universe? I don't need that from every superhero movie. And I think it would be nice if DC set themselves apart. Sometimes I like a deeper exploration of the characters. As I mentioned on the Black Adam edition of the Blatcast, I like the depth Zack Snyder put into his DC films, or at least attempts to put in, before the Warner Brothers executives stuck their noses in it. I can live with the movies not having the gravitas Snyder brings, but I don't want them to try to cram as many jokes as they possibly can, turn serious characters into buffoons, and have gore for the sake of gore. I know, the goal is to make hundreds of millions, if not billions of dollars. And to do that, you have to make it as palatable to the masses as possible. But if you could sacrifice a little bit of those profits, so a director who reveres the characters can make a movie or two that explores their depths, I'd be thrilled. Since my last podcast, there has been more news on Green Lantern. I had read somewhere that they were no longer going to develop a television series and instead reboot the movie. Apparently that was incorrect, as the original plans for the series have been retooled with a reportedly much lower budget. Oh, that bodes well. And instead of an ensemble with several Green Lanterns, it will focus on Jon Stewart. That's a good choice. He's a good character. I think Kyle Rayner is the best choice, and his character also lends itself to more creative ring constructs, but then that would probably also mean bigger CGI budget. We'll see what happens with that. In the meantime, I liked Black Adam. I loved the Justice Society. I liked the movie. Certainly worth a look on the big screen. Give it a watch. This is the Raging Rhino Podcast. You'll hear from me again.